Welcome to the first episode of the Bessie Podcast Series. I'm your host, Suzanne Panamarenko, and I will be interviewing the artists and nominees of the New York Dance and Performance Awards. Today, I'm in the studio with Jale Willa-Jo Zoller, who was presented this year with the Lifetime Achievement Award. Before we get started, I want to thank Lucy Sexton and Heather Robles for supporting the growth of the Bessie podcast series, as well as our sound editor, Jamie Amadruto. We are a new podcast, so with that, we will be working through technical issues, which you will hear, and I will be improving my hostessing skills over time. So in the meantime, please be patient and understand that we are doing this to provide visibility to our artists and to provide listeners and lovers of dance all around the world with an inside scoop and are really excited to chronicleize and support the outstanding artists in the field of dance and performance in New York City. If you are listening and would like to sponsor our podcast to help provide with proper sound space, equipment, etc., or to support on any level, please contact at Bessies at podcast.org. That's Bessies, B-E-S-S-I-E-S at podcast.org. Please enjoy the music by composer, pianist, teacher, and activist, Dorian Wallace. Okay, let's get started. Um, Jale, I'm so happy to have you. Um, thank you for you're the first person that is doing the Bessies podcast series. Um, and this is like a really big year. Um, you were the winner of the 2007 New York Dance and Performance Award for Lifetime Achievement in Dance. So it's really an honor to have you here. Yes. And I've had um, the pleasure over the past couple weeks researching your entire body of work. And I, it's, I'm uh, just like blown away and I have so many questions for you so you know I'm going to do this not in order but I just am going to start at the top you know you've been you started Urban Bushwoman in 1984 yes um, and you have a beautiful thing on your website about what it means to be an urban bushwoman and I just kind of want to hear from your voice what what it means to be an urban bushwoman and how you started that idea yes um when I was looking for a name of this group of dancers that I was working with, and actually in the beginning there were men in the company, mm-hmm. and or before we formed a company there were men I were working with, but you know I was working with, but they, they would you know there's less men in dance they'd get a better offer and totally. they'd leave, and you know I don't think I had an idea to form an all women's company, but when I was looking for a name I came across an album by a group called the Art Ensemble of Chicago called mm-hmm. Urban Bush Men. And I thought, that's it. I'm, we're urban bush women because I liked the idea of this idea that, that you are the, what people call the inner city is a form or a type of bush. Mm-hmm. It's thick. It's densely populated. Um, it's creative. It's powerful. There are dangers like there are out in the bush. And um, mm. and I just like the idea to think of this from a powerful place as opposed to the ways that most people were describing 
the community that I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, yes. all black community that I grew up in Kansas City. So when I, I, I thought of it as like we're gonna we're gonna claim and show our power as what you know as women, mm-hmm. as, as dancers, as individuals, we're gonna be very we're not gonna be cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. That it is about like jazz, how you hear the voice of each jazz jazz what we call jazz the music we call jazz how you hear the voice of each musician and they develop that singular sound and at the same time they can play with an ensemble Mm -hmm. so it's not an either or i'm an individual or i'm part of a group and i give up my identity both things merge yeah and it said i read somewhere that you wanted to almost reenact, not reenact, but you had a really strong feel growing up in Kansas of what it was like to be in that community, and that's kind of what you were looking to recreate. Yes. Is that kind of the, the baseline of yes. how you started this? And then you have a piece, Hep Hep Sweet Sweet, sweet. sweet. and yes. then you also said that as well. I was reading that that piece was similar to that kind of Rudy feel, and do you feel like even now in your work that you're still kind of pulled back to that roots of where you're from and like you're, you know, because... You have core values, and I think that what's remarkable about your work is you have stuck to your core values since you started, what, 33 years ago? Well, I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. Missouri, that's okay. (laughs) And there was something, with all of the things that were happening in the community, we're living in segregation. There, again, I. it's easy to just describe a community, particularly the ways that I would hear my community described, uh, the, the, all the things were all negative, mm-hmm. except they get to a cultural part, and then it would be positive. Um, so I did yeah. grow up around what was Kansas City music and uh, Kansas City swing, and I didn't realize how much that really influenced me um, because you know when you grow up in something, you're in it. And mm-hmm. my mother was a, je- uh, a singer and a dancer, oh, wow. and so she played the piano and. So I, you know, she had this extensive record collection. And so I grew up inside of this love of the music we, that's commonly called jazz, but it's, it's bigger than that name. And I also grew up with a love of just music, period, mm-hmm. classical, country, western, R&B. I just grew up with a love of music. And when I think back to Kansas City, one of the things that I remember is every time that I would hear music, be it a song or whatever it was, I would always see dance. Mm -hmm. That's the way I could experience Mm -hmm. the music was by Mm -hmm. seeing dance. So in the piece Hep Hep Sweet Sweet, I really wanted to go back to that intentionally, but that piece actually became a bigger story. So I left behind that piece, and and now I'm working on a work called Scat that is an evening-length work with um, a, uh, a band by Craig Harris, Craig Harris, and I... And it's like, I have to tell this story through dance and through music and through text. Mm, very, really, really. And you're working on now scat and also um, hair. hair. Hair and other stories. Yeah, I saw the clips online. And it just looks, the music is amazing. And it looks really, really interesting. Is that a fully developed already at this moment? Or are you still yes. in the studio? Yes, and what's, what I love about hair and other stories mm-hmm. is that it's part of an evolution of urban bushwomen. So when I first started thinking about bringing this work back, and you know we're applying for grants and all of that, because uh, it, it was it, I did a work called Hair Stories in two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, well it's got to be. It can't I'm just not going to restage an old work. It's got to be something else, particularly when it was dealing with topical subjects, 
around hair. And at the same time, we were launching our choreographic center, and I'm making this work scat. So I started to realize, like, okay, I think this is too much. And I have these two associate artistic directors who are both really strong performers and choreographers, Shannon Judson and Samantha Spies. So slowly it started to be that my, my, my role in Hair and Other Stories went more to dramaturgical creative producer and they became wow. the ones who are really the creative engines mm-hmm. behind the work and this is a new model for us oh so this is the first time you've ever done wow yes. and what's that like how is that like it's great right? <laughs> it's great because yeah. they've been they've both been in the company a long time mm-hmm. and so it's it feels part of the leadership development that mm-hmm. has been some a hallmark of urban women's work mm-hmm. that I've been doing for a very long time that this emerged naturally and so it's really exciting to see how they're younger as generationally, the, the things that, that are speaking to them and that are, they're speaking from now. Um, I am really interested about Joe, your training. So I really, mm-hmm. like I was tracing back your lineage, which is Catherine Dunham, Joseph Stevenson, and Diana McIntyre. So I'm from Cleveland, so I've heard of her name yes. before. So, um, And then she did this thing called Sounds in Motion. Yes. And I read that you moved to New York for Sounds in Motion. Is that correct? Yes. Well, when I first started dance, um, I studied with a man named Joseph Stevenson. And mm-hmm. he had a little small dance studio. It was right across my father's real estate office. Mm-hmm. So it was perfect. <laughs> and um, it was what... It would have been, the the dance that we were doing would probably be the equivalent of Mm hip-hop. It was what was called, it was dance, jazz dance or street dance that was not influenced by ballet or modern dance. Mm -hmm. But it was really coming out of the movements of the street. So at that time, it was movements of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, And that's what I grew Mm -hmm. grew up doing. And he had studied with Catherine Dunham. Uh, I never, I hadn't studied directly with mm-hmm. Catherine Dunham, but he had studied with Catherine Dunham. But I didn't know that at the time. He called it Afro-Cuban dance. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know what that meant. Um, but that's what I grew up. That's what I grew up doing. And again, we often performed with live music. Oh, that's amazing. Or with the music people call jazz, mm-hmm. Art Blakey. Um, so when I saw Diane McIntyre's company. As a student, I was a student at Florida State University mm. getting my MFA, and she was performing at Florida A&M, which is the historically black college, and I was at the historically white college yeah. um, and uh, at Florida State. And so when I saw this company, she had live jazz music and this use of vernacular, mm. and I, I, I just, I was like, I want to study and be with this woman. Wow. So I asked Diane if I could come and study with her company. I think I actually went up to her and said, I want to be in your company. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and then she, she actually, you know, she said, oh, you're a dancer. Hmm. She said, your vibe is a writer, which I'm actually coming into now. Oh, wow. So it's interesting. But um, so she said, well, you know, you can come up and study with me. So I wrote her this letter and I said, I want to come up and study. And in her studio at 125th and Lenox, there were musicians and poets and and visual artists that would all come by. So it was a nexus of creative thought. Mm-hmm. Um, they called the Culture Crew. Is yeah. that what they they called I, it? That is that true? Because I read that somewhere. I, I never heard that, but I'm, I'm I wouldn't be surprised if it's something I just don't mm-hmm. remember. But it certainly was a nexus of creative thought on the probably 
experimental radical side of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I was absolutely attracted to. Wow. And then so, and then after that you started, that's when you developed Urban Bush Woman a few years later. Yes. Yeah. So how do you feel like, how do you, how do your roots show up as far as Sounds in Motion, Joseph Stevenson, what you learned growing up? Like, do you still find that in your work today? Like, do you still go back there or do you feel like you, it shows up? My love of music particularly improv- creative improvised music mm-hmm. is always going to be there. And so I do remember when I first formed the co- or the first concert, um, you know how you always want to break from your, you know, your mentor. So I deliberately didn't use the music we often call jazz. I went to folkloric forms and I, and I, I think if I hadn't become a choreographer, I don't know what I would become, but likely an anthropologist mm-hmm. because I did a lot of study of, um, of Zora Neale Hurston and uh, African-American folklore. So that was kind of my second area. So I was creating like a neo-folkloric approach um, in in the early days. But the rhythms of the the music from Diane, from Mr. Stevenson, all of that was still very much in me. And the idea that Mr. Stevenson, in a time where people had recitals, we wore clothing that looked like street clothing. He didn't oh. want the, you know, the, the kind of recital clothes. Mm-hmm. So our clothes looked like street clothing. And, and uh, he always would talk about that he wanted us to dance from the inside out. Mm-hmm. It was like, what is driving you? Mm-hmm. And that was the same language I would hear from Diane. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it reminded me of another thing I heard you say, which is, often you plan your choreography and, and people have commented that it looks like it's sparse, like just happening in the moment. Yes. You know? <laughs> I used to get very upset about that because they would ask us questions in a post-performance discussion. Do you all have any training? Um, is it all, you know, is, was there any choreography? I was like, what do you mean? Is, that, is it all improvised? And then I realized, oh, I used to get very annoyed by that question. Mm-hmm. But then I realized, because I also have a background in theater, it's actually the same thing in theater, that when you go to see a play, you know the actor is trained, you know the actor has rehearsed their lines, their blocking, their mm-hmm. staging, but if, if, it's, if it has integrity and it's real, mm-hmm. it feels like it's coming out just in that moment. That's what we strive for in Urban Bushwomen. So we strive for it to feel like it is unfolding right in that moment. But to make that happen is hours of practice and hours of specificity. Mm -hmm. So I realize that people are more used to understanding that in theater, but not necessarily understanding that in dance. And there is also nothing wrong with improvisation in dance. Mm -hmm. I would say mostly what we do is not a lot of improvisation on the stage, but we do what we call living in the moment. Mm -hmm. So you have this baseline of information, of physicality, of steps or phrases, but the artist is in that moment. So therefore, whatever that moment is is saying, and however you're relating to other people, it's going to have slightly different nuances. Mm -hmm. So you're going to play it differently, slightly differently each night, but you don't change the steps. You know, it's an interesting journey because um, when I first started, I really didn't have a lot of tools around directing. Mm -hmm. But I got to be in the studio with a lot of directors, and I would just begin to notice 
uh, how they were directing the artist and how the artist were taking the direction but allowing their imagination to infuse the direction and, and bring something unique. And so right now I'm working, I'm uh, restaging the work Shelter, created oh. for Bushman in 1988, 89, and I'm restaging it on the Alvin Ailey Company right oh, now. I read the how exciting. I'm it's very wait exciting. To see it. And um, what I what I've been giving them is our is our process mm-hmm. that I've developed over the many years of creating or paying attention to directing. So it's a combination of a methodology that is that Urban Bushman has developed. Over many years, that I call it an actor's process through a dancer's physicality, wow. and and then I would add to that, and through Urban Bushman's lens of analysis of racism and community engagement, all of that informs the choices that the dancers are making. So, what I'm what I'm starting to be able to do now is articulate. In fact, I, I teach a course on uh, choreography for directors, uh, directing for choreographers at Florida State University for the grad students, and I'm starting to develop choreographic labs for people who are interested in directing for choreographers. So this is wow. something I'm starting to do because it is a little bit different, even if you're using text or. So I have I do have a methodology now and. Um, what I'm always just so in love with is when I trust the process, it delivers. Mm-hmm. The dancers will wow. Wow. deliver. And I don't care what kind of dancer they are. If I introduce people to the process at the right time, and that's a little that's that's skill with to understand when is the time to to introduce process, how deep you go. You have to read the room. You have to really read people's energy. You know, did you take them too fast? You have to back mm-hmm. up. So that's what I've really developed a methodology around, and I'm writing a book about. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Yes. When is it supposed to go into publisher? Oh, well. it? <laughs> <laughs> it's in the writing. Oh, it's in the writing oh, stage. Very, very it's exciting. Very, it's very exciting. Oh, that's so fascinating. That is amazing. Um, I, You know, you reminded me of there's so many things I have to ask you. Gosh, it's just so... Um, what you said, I was really moved by when you first started your company and you, there was a particular interview where you said you went to Charleston and in the audience, there was only white people. And then you started going into the communities and they started calling it outreach. Mm -hmm. And, and then you said the word community engagement and you did that. You were in Louisiana and I know I watched a project you did there, but you spoke a lot on what community engagement means to you and how you aren't looking to fix anything or you're just engaging the stories of what is already there. Yes. And then it seems like you do that in your summer leadership. Yeah. Absolutely. So can you speak on that and how, sure. and what, how, like what has that done for the communities? Like when you come in, it's this fresh thing. And when you leave, what is left there? Yeah. You know, a lot of people, so the outreach model is still a very popular model and it's often that you're saying, okay, they went to this many classes and they serve this many people and you're doing the grant reports and it's for numbers um, yeah. as opposed to depth of experience. And that's what I call the outreach model. And it's often an institution that's somewhat disconnected, not always, from its population. And it's really just about we serve this many people. Mm-hmm. What we started to define as community engagement, which was a term that came out of really the, the social sciences, 
And I think particularly the health community, I think we might have been the first company to use the term community engagement. I never want to say that because there may have been somebody before us. But in 1991, we started using this term community engagement. And we meant something very specific and differentiated from an outreach model. What we mean by community engagement is that there's an extensive planning process. There's a mutual learning um, that we... We talk about the issues and we don't come in with a plan of this is what's oh, going to be. Okay. So over time, what we, I've made a distinction between community engagement, which is very specific for us, community activities, which could lead up to, to going into community engagement over time because you're building a relationship, community participation projects mm. where you as a choreographer might go in and say, I've got this project, who wants to be a part of that? And it might have some engagement in it, but it's it's really about, I've got this idea and who would like to join me in this? And that's a community participation project. All of these are valid. What I think is powerful, so when we mean community engagement, we mean a depth of process. That word is now used kind of, everybody says community engagement. So for me, it's still a little bit of a, of a thing when I hear it, but what I'm seeing is an outreach model. So people are saying community engagement, mm -hmm. but actually what I'm experiencing, seeing, or what we're being asked to do is an outreach model. And what you do, is, it seems, is a lot more deeper yes. than an outreach model. That's Absolutely. very interesting. Absolutely. Wow, yeah. And so how does that translate as far as um, where you show up? Like, or do you find, like, do you go back to the, the same communities? Like, you know, you do your leadership, pro so you have people sign up. I have had a, many friends that have done those programs and have loved them. Um, uh, I just think it's so interesting because then you get to experience your art form really shaping something and really making a difference. And it shapes us. Mm. So, first of all, we only go where we're invited. Okay. So we don't, like, even if a community's in crisis, or we don't just show up and say, we're, you know, we have something, we're going to be great for you. Uh, we only go where we're invited. So we have a, uh, as a part of our summer leadership workshop, uh, we have several core workshops. One is entering, building, and exiting community. And that's developed over our community engagement process where we started noticing the methodology around entering, building, wow. and exiting community. And again, it's by, we, we go where we're invited. And then we work with an organization called People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. And they have a, work, they have a workshop and methodology called Understanding and Undoing Racism. Now, we've been working with them since 1992. We met, they're based in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. It is not a diversity training. It is looking at a structural analysis of racism and how it shows up in your life, in your work, in your organizing, who takes power and uh, who doesn't. And the manifestations are internalized racial superiority for white folks and internalized racial inferiority for mm. black folks and people of color. And we're saying this without blame or guilt. We're saying this is the structural racism that we have all inherited, and it dehumanizes all of us. It dehumanizes white people. It dehumanizes people of color. And if we can begin to understand this, then we can restore our full humanity. Mm -hmm. So that's really a yeah. crux of our Summer Leadership Institute. And then out of that comes asset mapping. You know, most 
communities, uh, you know, black communities or, or poor communities are described from a needs assessment. Yes. They need this. They need yes. this. They don't have this. And that's why the mm-hmm. idea of defining yourself from the assets, the things that are powerful, changes the narrative. You know, there's uh, this there's this term called the changing same. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And, the changing um, same. The changing same. So there are manifestations that look slightly different. <laughs> but we're still, I mean, I was, th- I was thinking about this. This memory came up the other day that, you know, so, it, so we were talking about, you know, as teenagers, and I was talking about the first boy that I made out with, kissed and made out with. Um, he was shot and killed uh, by the police. He was shot in the back, mm. running from the police. I think I was 13 or 14. He might have been 15. And um, Bernard... That's what I mean by the changing Uh saying. We were disempowered in that situation, in that time. That was 1963, 64. I didn't know how to rise up against that. You felt this defeat. Um, And so when the black power and the civil rights movement and the black power movement started to really come into being, you, you know, I begin to feel agency. Culturally, the black arts movement, which Diane McIntyre was a part of, we started to feel agency in expressing ourselves as our voice, as our unique voice from our cultural experiences, which include Western European culture, which include cultures of the diaspora, um, and to bring that fully to its voice and to talk about the issues that are important. So I call it running towards the fire while you're on fire. Mm, wow. That idea that you're in this urgent situation, but something calls you to run towards it and make work about it as opposed to moving away from it. Um, wow. And we just saw that in you know the horrible situation in Las Vegas. The people who ran towards the urgency of the danger to help others. To, to, to lift up something. And so that's what I think I came out of Diane's work, out of the community wow. that I grew up in, is that I have to speak to these issues because I see the distress in my community. And I so I have to speak to it. Now, that doesn't mean that every single piece speaks to that. Mm-hmm. There's some works that are fun and there was a work I did, I don't know, but I've been told, oh. if you keep on dancing, you'll never grow old. <laughs> yeah. And it was, that was about, great. it was about street styles and dance and, and the, the agency the young people had in dancing. Because one person had made a comment, we have to get dance back in the public schools. And I thought, clearly you're not seeing how there is dance in yeah, the public schools. I'm- However, it's maybe not the kind of dance that you value, but there's dance there. Mm-hmm. So how do we value that and start from there? So not everything is like heavy. Yeah. Uh, but it's recognizing I'm I'm being who I am, and and all of the cultural influences from um, I was I was walking over thinking today about one of my teachers Winifred Widener and she was introducing us to the Bauhaus exercises, and um, and we would do these exercises drawing these two dimensional exercises and then we'd have to create we'd have to create dances from these Bauhaus exercises. Oh, so cool. it's not all. We're not all one thing. Mm-hmm. But the yeah. big thing that I am that you recognize when I walk in as a black woman, mm-hmm. um, uh, that often 
that part of my culture has often been marginalized. Yeah. So it makes me want to speak to it more. What advice would you give for artists that are feeling disempowered but do feel they have a strong voice? Like, what would you suggest for the person that wants to start being a voice but maybe doesn't have guidance on how to do that? Do your work and research, study, research, do your work, research, study. You have to go in and, and research. I was uh, in, um, in rehearsal the other day uh, at Ailey. I was talking about one section called Belongo. And the, the work is about homelessness. And in the middle of the work, there's a section that is references the Atlantic slave trade. And for me, that is how, when I look at all the black people that I see and people of color that I see that are homeless on the streets, where did that come from? Where did that disengagement and dis, disenfranchisement mm-hmm. come from? And when you look at the effects of the Atlantic slave trade where people say, oh, that was just, that was a long time ago, get over it. No, my grandfather was actually born around 18, in the 18, late 1870s or 1880s, somewhere around there. His grandmother, his mother, was born into slavery. So, no, it's not that long ago. Yeah. These are scars and wounds and manifestations that we carry. So when I look at things like the hazing rituals on college campuses, which this is, this is generalization, but often what I see on the, in the white fraternities is drinking, and what I see in the black uh, fraternities is beating. Where does that beating come from? Mm -hmm. That is a manifestation of something. The drinking, is it's a manifestation of something. These come from something. They don't just come out of the thin air. And so that's the anthropologist, psychologist, and me. That's the study that I'd ask people to do. Because sometimes if you just make a work based on a feeling or an opinion... Mm -hmm. It won't have the depth. Mm-hmm. You have to develop expertise. You have to study the, the, the complex histories. You, you want to know things that are outside of your own maybe personal history. You want to study other forms, other cultures. That's what that would be. Be curious. Be mm-hmm. curious about the world. And, then, and don't um, forget who you are. That's really important, um, exactly, because it's, it's what you are is all of what you are. Yes. And I think that, you know, and speaking on that, um, you talked a lot about, you know, taking risk and falling flat on your face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's exactly what it is, finding your voice, is taking risk. Is there, like, anything in particular that you can recall in an early start of your career where you did take a risk where you kind of, you know, you know, you ended up where you are now, but you felt like you wanted to run for the hills with dance. Oh, yeah. Because I think that's really common in a young artist, you know, emerging artist voice. I have a lot of what I call catalytic failures uh-huh. <laughs> um, because they, they, they catalyze you to learn something. Okay, what happened here? Um, I think when I first started the company and I had come from, you know, undergraduate and graduate school in dance. And my background study had been Graham and Cunningham Mm. and Lamone, and these were all beautiful forms. I thought, but those were their voice. How do I find, how do I use that but find my voice? 
So in the beginning, I wouldn't let the dancers say, no, don't point your feet. No, take away that idea of pull up, which as we began to do more vocal production work, we started to understand that if we want, as an actor, if you want to have access to your voice, the vocal production and your emotions, that you couldn't do that pull up thing that we do in dance. We had to find another way to stabilize our core and engage our core. So we, we, we began developing that. So you know, within, within all of that, idea of let me find another way then there was a period of time where I had been raising money for you know we had been doing works that were dance music theater and then there was one work I did Bones and Ash and that work had some things but it kind of really fell apart it didn't quite work as a work and then I found that we had trouble getting funding on that level again to do a dance music theater work. So I kind of abandoned that direction and went to more dance works. And I started to work with dancers who had this enormous facility which I wouldn't let the dancers use before. It's like, no, I don't want it to look like that. And so I started to experiment with, okay, what does it mean to start to use that facility? And I think sometimes I just, I I think I was lost. I think there's a 10 year period that maybe creatively I was just lost because My original voice of this dance music theater, I couldn't do anymore. I'm trying to create this new form. I'm using dancers. I'm working with dancers who have this physicality. I'm not sure how to use it. But that was a phase. So that, a lot of, I didn't produce a lot of good work during that time. But what I learned through that is now in the work. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's powerful. Mm-hmm. Because I've come back to dance theater work. Mm-hmm. Dance music theater work. And I now understand how to coach a dancer that's got this incredible facility or is mostly ballet trained to find this other kind of thing. I know how to direct them now. I'm inspired by the people I work with. I have to say, over the years, the dancers that I have worked with have all contributed to the vision of Urban Bush Women, and I've learned so much from each and every one of them, whether they stayed two weeks or 10 years. Each, each one has contributed to the vision and the voice of the collective of urban bushwomen. And um, I can't separate myself from that. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that maybe frustrates me the most in dance is how dance is written about. So when you look oh, at wow. how mm-hmm. music that we call jazz is written about, they'll talk about the composer um, or the band leader, but then they'll talk about the people who are in the band and what they're bringing to yeah, that person. So they'll say that this person, this this pianist brought a rhythmic complexity to the that developed in the work. Nobody talks about that with the dancers. They just, it's still that old mentality, they're a dime a dozen and next. No, they contribute. Each one of them brings something unique and specific to urban bushwomen that contributes to the ongoing ongoing body of information that we call urban bushwomen. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Um, well, so I guess I have to write about it. Yeah, I guess you do, because that is so true, because the, the dancer, there is a diamond doesn't feel, and I felt that in my own training. Yeah. So when you said that you were learning these techniques, and you're like, well, that's not my voice, I want to find my voice, that... For me, at least, I could not get out of that. I thought, well, I have to do this yeah, and, and be this. And there's, and there's nothing, nothing wrong, wrong with that. No. Because that teaches you a discipline about, you know, when you have to recreate 
exactly something that's given to you in an exact kind of way, there is a good discipline to that. For me, you know, I was a choreographer before I knew that word because, again, when I heard music, I saw dance and chore- and, 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 and productions. Um, so for me, the idea, and I was reading a lot of writers mm-hmm. and a lot of writers' process, and I was reading a lot about visual artists, and it's about finding your, and jazz musicians, mm-hmm. finding your individual voice. So for me, that was important. Um, that may or may not be important to everyone, but that's what I, when I work with um, uh, students at Florida State, the grad students in particular, that's the thing that I feel like I do best. There are people who are really great at teaching choreographic form. For me, choreographic form comes out of the idea. It comes out of the idea that mm-hmm. you want to create. So for us, we create a language generally for each work. Mm-hmm. So. My work will look different over the years because we created a language for that idea. So I'm interested in, that's, that's the thing that I've developed over the year. Design and composition, that's all part of the things I studied. And there's people who are great at teaching that. For me, I get excited about the choreographic voice. Mm, yeah, and then, so for the individual pieces, when you're starting with a piece, and I'm sure you have a lot of different processes, but um, in research, you start with the research is what I'm hearing, Absolutely. right? And then Absolutely. when do you feel like, okay, I'm ready to go to the studio. I'm ready to teach a phrase. Like, you know, I guess it could be different for every work. Yeah, for every work, like for the walking with train work, um, which is inspired by the life of life legacy and music of John Coltrane. I, I had bought this book maybe a year or two years before by Ashley Kahn. And it was like, you know, I read at night, so I picked it up. I was like, oh, I haven't read this book. I've had a long time. So it was about 9 p.m. at night and, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm still reading the book. Uh, And I'm just, I can feel my whole body shaking. So I began to do a lot of research. I had already been in love with John Coltrane's music. So I just started doing a lot of listening. I went to an exhibit on John Coltrane. I started talking to musicians, finding any writing. There's so many books written on Coltrane. So that was... That was probably a two, three-year process mm-hmm. before I said, I want to make a work called Walking with Train. Mm-hmm. Then that process becomes with the group. So now we're doing what we call embodied experiential research. So yeah. we, we now are researching together, experiencing something, and then coming back in the studio and making work from that. So it goes from me... You know, and then I'm talking to a lot of people about it. You know, I'm so excited about Coltrane. What do you know about Coltrane? And people with different things. So that's generally the way most works develop. Sometimes it may be a long period. Like there's one work I won't talk about what it is, but it's now kind of been five years that it's been stewing, and I'm researching, and I go back and read again, and and I write the images, and it's now starting to like maybe I'm starting to ready to talk to people about this work. So it can be a long process or it can be like a really short, quick process. Like with, when hair stories emerged, it started because we were on the road and we were all talking about what people had said to us about our hair. So I started doing stand-up comedy around oh. hair, you know, these stories around hair because I, yeah. I have this wicked sense of humor that's sometimes very irreverent and gets me into a lot of trouble. <laughs> And I come from, you know, I have family that are that are comedians. And, oh, and, wow, really? Uh, my niece, Keisha Zoller, uh-huh. um, is, a, is a comedian and writer. So I, I started off as stand-up comedy, and then I realized when I was before a black audience, they were cracking up laughing. 
And then I did it before a white audience, and it's like crickets because they didn't know the reference points. Mm-hmm. They didn't know the things that I was talking about, the kitchen and the hair. They didn't know what I was talking about when I was making these jokes. So I created a character, Dr. Professor, kind of inspired by Cornell West, um, <laughs> that was this kind of over-the-top professor who was uh, a napologist and taught a course called Napology oh, 101. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> As okay. a way to bridge that cultural divide mm-hmm. um, so that the humor... Because humor is very specific. It doesn't land from culture to culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a way to bridge, very true. Yeah, to bridge the cultural divide. Oh, wow. So what other artists do you have in your family? Were you, you know, do you, is, are you from a family of artists? Yes. My very. mother was a singer and a dancer. My sister and I started dance school together, and she oh. dances with a, a West African company in North Carolina. Uh, my brother is a jazz musician oh. who's played with the Duke Ellington Orchestra, Count Basie Orchestra, Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. And uh, then I have two corporate brothers, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) So you're from a big family. Thank God, you know, because they give us the support. But also the business savvy. Mm -hmm. Because if you you want to be an artist, it it is a business. Oh, yes. You may not want to, you may not really want to start there, but eventually you've got to embrace it is a business and you start, you've got to start to get business savvy. So when mm-hmm. the organization almost collapsed around 2000, 2001, um, we had a, a big financial crisis. And when I was talking to my brother, he said, okay, mm-hmm. stay focused. Mm-hmm. And he started suggesting books about leadership development and crisis management. And that's when I got interested in organizational theory. So I found that I love this. It's like, oh, oh. Oh, okay, first it was called chaos theory and then complexity theory and these ways that organizations organize themselves, the difference between volumes, operation, and complex mm-hmm. systems. And, and so I started, I, I, you know, I started reading Harvard Business Review and any kind of books around organizational theory, but I was applying it to our artistic model. And then I was seeing books that, that it sounded like, were they following Urban Bushwoman? Because I wow. could swear that's our process, mm-hmm. but it's just in different language. Mm-hmm. So there was one book that I was really particularly influenced by, by Otto Scharmer, Theory of, Theory of You, which is literally a U-shape, oh. and um, his Presencing Institute. And it talks about starting at the top, and you go down the left side, and at the bottom you find source, and then you come up and reintegrate on the right side, you know, with, with purpose and strength. And I thought, that's our process. Whether that process happens in a day, that pro- that's our EBX. Whether that process happens in three years, whether it happens in a work, that's the process. So I started to see the difference between for-profit organizational theory and leadership development. So in all these discussions, wow. people would have, okay, are you thinking about succession planning? And I was like, I really don't like that term. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, oh, well, yeah, founders don't like to hear that. I said, no, it's like the needs assessment. So I start thinking of, let me turn this around. If I do the leadership development at the point that I don't want to serve or I'm unable to serve, the leadership development would be in place where their people are there. So so my approach was... You know, rather than think like 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 the loss, let me think of the abundance and how do I 
How do I create an environment where artistic leaders can emerge, have the kinds of knowledge they need to have to be able to run an organization, whether they come to Urban Bushwoman or not? And then again, that's our Summer Leadership Institute, but it's also now our Choreographic Center. Yes, because um, you, you know, I started really looking in your work and you've created a huge, I mean, you're winning the Lifetime Achievement Award you've created a universe of <laughs> urban bushwomen and it all came from your voice. That is just, you know, when I, I mean, it's like remarkable and it's also, you know, I'm sure it was very step-by-step, but it just is so, I mean, it's remarkable what you're doing for the community, you know? Well, it's, it's for it's me, really, but it's, yeah. it's for me. I mean, that's the that's thing. That's interesting. It's a, it's a synergy. It's not like I'm going to help those people. Yeah, I'm yeah. doing this because it's part of me. Wow. And and so, you know, when, when I got the, the call about the, the lifetime achievement, I was like, I'm too young. Okay, so you're going to have to give it to me again in 20 years. <laughs> Because that's what I was thinking too. Like, what's next? You know, like there. I mean, I can't eat because it's just like bold. You know, I was reading about bold. I was yeah. reading about your summer leadership program. Yeah. I was reading about you know, and I was just thinking, well, what, what is next? You know, you're writing a book. You know, you have pieces going on. You're you're starting this new phase of your work. It sounds all so exciting. Well, when I realized when I was, it was so conf- people just did not get like. Well, what, wait a minute, you're a dance company, you're dealing with racism, I, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the language. And so when I found this article about complex systems, and my brother was uh, one of the highest ranking, you know, a high ranking executive with IBM. And so IBM kind of moved from this computer to these systems. And I started, you know, talking to him about that and uh, my brother Al Zoller. Yeah. And that... So people couldn't understand, like, and I even just had a question with the funder, like, I don't get how all these things relate to one another. Well, they're centered through our values. So our values are centered through, the whole organization comes together every year for a summer leadership institute, and we bring as many of our bold facilitators, builders, organizers, and leaders through dance who teach our community engagement uh, and community workshops so they, they, we bring as many as we can to our Summer Leadership Institute. And the whole organization gets reinvigorated on the values. Are we walking our talk? And we challenge ourselves to really like, it's one thing to give lip service to core values. It's another thing to challenge yourself. Are we doing, and, and when we don't, how do we get back on track? Um, and so that's at the center And then all of these things that happen, the touring company, the making new work, the the choreographic center, are all tied around the core values and how the Summer Leadership Institute reinforces them every year. So every new manager that comes into Urban Bushwoman, they look at our institute model and they're like, okay, it's about 100 people come, but you've got 16 to 20 faculty. That ratio is off. You know, you you should really only have about five faculty to make this an economic model. And what we're saying is no, but it's the leadership development. It's where we all get grounded. Yes. So it's 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 about how we come together. And when we do the work around entering community and particularly around racism uh, with People's Institute, it destabilizes people. So you need a large mm-hmm. circle of people to hold the container of people who are struggling 
And um, it's a very, every year I just, it's, it's, I love it. It's my favorite. We all kind of gear up because it's kind of our favorite time to, that we all come back together and we do this work and we really examine, you know, with a lot of heart, without shame or blame, where we were strong and where we fell down. And our focus is on how do we get back up? How do we recover? How do we get ourselves aligned again? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, no, talk about, you have a new, um, it's not a building, but it's actually, um, you're mentoring choreographers. Yes, that's yeah. the Choreographic Center. That's the Choreographic Center. It is not center. a building. Okay, it is, yeah. Exactly. It is a center of ideas and networks and, and, and mm-hmm. um, people. And um, <laughs> that's, that's come up a lot like, if it's a center, she would have a building. Yeah. Like, no, this is Urban Bushman. We, yeah. we define our own terms. Yes, totally. So, no, it's a center of ideas and people and networks. And it's, how, again, how do we strengthen? What I started to see is that the voices of particularly black women, but women of color, experimenters, because it didn't look like other experimental forms, that they weren't, they were kind of like, almost outside of the downtown or experimental community. There would be a few exceptions. So it's like, how can we support what I sometimes call these radical experimenters and their evolution from, you know, this emerging radical experimenter where we're saying, go do, you know, don't think about craft and form. Find your voice. Go do these really interesting things. And then somewhere then you now have to start to think more rigorously around craft and, and dramaturgy, mm-hmm. and then somewhere you start to get to a point where like, okay, you need administrative structure, and you need wow. help in, in, in kind of moving mm-hmm. through, and as, we, as I, I spent maybe a couple of years interviewing choreographers at different stages in different places about what are your needs, what are you, what would be helpful to you, and you know, certain things started Themes started emerging. Uh, people wanted convenings. They wanted workshops. They wanted opportunities to have dramaturgical support uh, in ways that were important to them. Some artists mm-hmm. didn't want dramaturgical support at all. They're like, no, I, you know, I do that myself. So it's not a cookie cutter approach to this is what you do. It's very much an individualized. How do we help you with your trajectory mm-hmm. um, by looking at first my own history, but also bringing you with other people and expertise. So we're getting ready to have a convening up at Jacob's Pillow next week um, of of our first choreographic fellows who are kind of in like, I don't know if mid-career isn't quite right, but you know, they're 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 not quite emerging, um, or they're on the brink of emerging in something else, whatever that mm-hmm. something else is. Marjani Forte, Francesca Harper, uh, Paloma McGregor, uh, Marguerite Hemings, and we're going to come together with dramaturgs, researchers, historians to talk about how do we support you um, in this. This is this is the leadership development. Mm-hmm. So if again, I want those voices out there because the stories that they have to tell are important and are not going to be told by other people. Yeah, like you said, untold or undertold stories. Yeah. I love that. That is so, um, I loved when you said that. Yeah, Brenda Dixon Gottschild, I, is she, uh, this is years ago, she did a lecture, and she talked about this African proverb, uh, when the lions tell history, that if the lion tells the history, it will be a very different history from the point of view of the hunter. 
Mm-hmm. And so these different perspectives for me are important. So how can the choreographic center strengthen these voices that have often been othered or marginalized? And then how do we, by sometimes being on the margins, find the strength because we can look at the center and say, and, and critique, we have a distance. So again, how do we find strength in where we are and then continue to move and have greater impact and influence? That's wonderful. Now, how could, what would you suggest to someone not living in New York City? How can they reach you? How can they get more involved in what you're doing? How could they gain knowledge from you from afar? So there's a lot of different ways of, of entry points. First of all, go to our website. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a Facebook and Instagram. I'm not on social media, so I don't know what they are. But I know there's a Facebook and Instagram. But if you go on our website, it will have that information. It will also have the information on the Choreographic Center. So in the summer, that's primarily the time where we do our generative dancer workshop, which is something we're developing out of the Choreographic Center. Um, we'll be good, you know, hopefully de- developing this director's lab, um, our, our summer leadership institute, so those are the ways that you can engage with us. It also has our tour schedule. Okay. So you can engage with us through uh, how we are out in the world as a performing ensemble. So these multiple ways, and then sometimes we're doing, Sometimes there's events going on in New York, but I would say our website and joining our email list, mm-hmm. um, and then if you're so moved, you know, supporting us, because it is complex work. It's time-intensive work. It doesn't happen... You know, it, 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 it needs, it's, it's not instant work. It takes a lot of time. We are meticulous about our debriefing processes. We do that a lot. I think, so, you know, for some managers, it drove them crazy. It's like, another debriefing. <laughs> no, because yeah. we need to yeah. learn. We need mm-hmm. to learn to understand how do we make this better? What do we yeah, learn? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I think that's what I, you know, I choreograph as well. And I just always feel like, I, you know, that this is the date and it has to be. And I'm like, ah, like I can't. I don't have any space. Well, we should get know? rid of that word premiere. Yeah, yeah. Premiere should be, mm-hmm. sh- you know, stricken from our vocabulary because there's really no such thing. Mm-hmm. It's the first performance. But like most artists, you're going to continue working on the work. If you think about theater, they have, the, you know, they have a stage reading, and then they have workshops, and then they have you know, several years of workshopping yeah. and work, and, um, and, there, and there's performances attached to those workshops, and then previews. And, and, and so it's a long time before they get to call the premiere. I work with Taylor Mack, and he says, I don't use that word, premiere. Yeah. Um, it only confuses people. Yeah. <laughs> because like, well, I thought you premiered that work. What do you mean you're still working on it? And then you have to play this little game with like, yes, that was the premiere. Yes, we're going through another working process. And so it's changing. And so then we're playing all these kind of PR and, you know, mm-hmm. let's just get rid of that word. Yeah. <laughs> premiered in 1986, rework. <laughs> <laughs> premiered in my mind. Yeah. You know. Exactly. And you're performing at the Bessies. Yes. You are. I'm really excited. God wow. willing, the body holds out. <laughs> <laughs> and are you preparing? You're, you know, it's Monday. That's, you know, the besties are Monday for those. Um, this will be aired after the besties. But yeah, so how does that look like? Are you, you know, are everyone's really excited to see it? Well, it started because I'm working with Taylor Mack. Mm-hmm. And he asked me if I would perform. I, I started choreographing with him with the backup singers. And then I did one thing on the 24 hour performance. 
Um, and then he asked me, and as he's reworked the show for touring, um, if I would perform five solos. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, so he kind of brought me out of retirement. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the solo that I'm doing, I created in 1987 at the yard. And I ran into oh. Doug Garone. And Doug is also now performing. We were at the yard together in 1987. And he's performing a solo that he made at the yard at the same time. Wow. So, like I said, God willing that the body holds out, um, I'll be performing that solo, Bitter Tongue. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Really wonderful. And then um, how is that to kind of, put? like, have you been working on that or is you yes. performing that yes. just for this? Yes. Once I knew that, well, it's, it's part of the material that I'm bringing, um, that I'm working with for Taylor. So I just started, you know, okay, how do I bring this material back in my body? How do I get myself to a place of being able to perform and rehearse and you know you know I've all, I'm, I'm, I've always been pretty good about conditioning and but now a performance brain is a different brain it's a different type of focus and intensity which means that I have to let go of things some things administratively to be inside of a performance brain and I think a lot of I had one person say this to us one time oh I don't know, dancers, they just lay around on all day and then they, you know, they have, they perform at night. Like, I wish I could do that. And I was like, hmm, I don't think you'd say that to a marathon runner. Mm-hmm. I don't think you'd mm-hmm. say that to an athlete, the way they, the, the, the Olympic athletes, the way they space out their events yeah. because of the recuperation that's needed in the body um, to do these events. But that's the mindset. You're just, you know, you're just, you know, you're you know lazy artist. You're just... Blah, blah. And how you gear yourself up, prepare, the way that you go into, come into this heightened state of being as a performer, and then how you recover that from that, that is a long process. Mm -hmm. And I think we just had a conversation with a presenter who clearly didn't understand that. That is a long process. And, um, I really wish people understood that more about a dancer. We get it about an athlete. We protect them, but we yeah, don't understand it about dance. Absolutely. And you have to warm up an hour to two hours mm-hmm. before. Yes. You have to cool down and stretch mm-hmm. after the performance. You go back, you soak, you stretch. So there is a whole process involved in that time that, again, I think people do not understand. Yeah. You know, one thing that you say that, you know, I wrote this down, almost always we have needed something we didn't have and our supporters have stepped forward to provide it. I love that. You know, you yeah. are, that's really strong. The supporters, and, and sometimes that, that support comes from people writing checks, which is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it comes from emotional support. Mm-hmm. Like when I was going to fold the company, and I remember going to the dancers and I said, I feel like I'm holding up an elephant with a toothpick. And the emotional support that they gave to know. So one woman, one woman in particular, Wanjiro, you know, I, had, I said, okay, I can't do this. And then she would just start sending these, me these emails of how people said how Urban Bushwoman had affected them. Wow. The, the, um, the, the residency support that has come from, that have come from presenters and, you know, the funders, the, the individual donors, the funders, um, all of that is crucial and vital support and um, you know I'm I'm learning to trust it 
And also you, ex- you become like an accordion. You can grow and then sometimes mm-hmm. you shrink, but you grow and you shrink. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's part of the cycle of life. Is there anything else that you want to say to listeners? I just want to say to the Bessie committee, I just have great love that you recognized um, this work, that you recognized the years, the thought, (laughs) how, you know, how much goes into that work that is Urban Bushwomen. And... um, and, I, you know, I want to say to all of the people, there's so many people, we started together. Like, we all kind of formed companies together. Mark Morris, B.B. Miller, Doug Verone, Stephen Petronio, um, Ralph Lemon. Um, it's so many of us. We all kind of started that they're part of this circle. And that lifetime achievement is... We are all producing work. I think Bill T. Jones says, we are all still producing work. Mm -hmm. And we are producing work that is vital and important. And most of us are figuring out ways to connect with younger generations. So this ecology Mm -hmm. in dance is a really important thing. So I'm deep gratitude that the ecology of urban bushwomen and how we support younger artists and how we stay powerful and aligned is being recognized mm-hmm. thank you oh well thank you for your work and then a lot of our listeners i think are gonna you know we're hoping to reach a really wide audience so we're just so thrilled that people that may have not have heard of urban bush Women or have heard of you know that this exists and maybe they will find they will find inspiration to you know find their own voice and to see that one person can really expand to the fullest and then keep going you know like you said it's a lifetime achievement but you can win it in 20 years too and that would be (laughs) double the but thank you so much for taking time to do this it means so much to us um we are so thrilled to have you perform we're thrilled for this interview and i'm just so happy to share this with the community yeah it really means a lot thank you thank you Thank you again for listening. And before we go, I wanted to make a correction. The Bessie's email is podcast at Bessie's.org. That's podcast at Bessie's.org. And Jale Willa-Joe-Zoller was the 2017 award winner for Lifetime Achievement in Dance. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoyed.